You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. Well, good morning. Doing things a little differently this morning in that I'm going to speak at you a little bit before we see the video. Rest assured there is a video. You know, um, time and time again... uh, I do what the Lord wants me to do, and I always wonder why he does what he does when he does it. And so last week was Kid Sunday, right? So all the kids were in here, and it was a really strong message. It was very intentional. Um, yeah, that's the series that we're at. Uh, this message is still intentional, but I think the kids might have enjoyed this one a little better than last week. Did this last time, too, when the Kid Sunday, and I showed the video of the wolves eating the bison, and I'm like, a oh, great Kid Sunday. And the week after that, I showed Veggie Tales or something. And so, uh, I'm just one week off, I think, but the Lord must be doing something. Needless to say, I want to give you a little bit of background on this video before you watch it, because you need some context to understand what you're about to see. Um, the video that we're going to watch is called The Marshmallow Temptation, and it's a, uh, yeah, there you go, the kids should have been here. Um, we, uh, we're going to watch a video of a, it's a recreation of a study that Stanford did in the 70s. Um, and it was intended to uh, help people understand delayed gratification. So offer them something and let them sit with it for a while and offer them something greater if they refuse to partake in what was in front of them initially. And so the video you're going to see is a recreation of that with children. Um, so children are going to be ushered into a room. They're going to be given a big fluffy marshmallow. And they're going to be told, if you sit here with this marshmallow for a little bit, if you don't eat it, When I come back, I'll give you another. Uh, You can have two marshmallows, but it's your marshmallow. You can eat it. Up to you. Eat it now. Get one marshmallow. Eat it later. Get two marshmallows. Um, And so the kids uh, have some great reactions, and it's a little insight for us this morning on delayed gratification, on resisting temptation, and so forth and so on. So I will let you partake in the video, then we will get back to the meat of the matter. That was cute, huh? Kids are adorable. Um, I, uh, I sorted through a lot of their reactions to give just that little clip scene there. Um, very few made it to the end, um, and they made it even worse. They came in uh, halfway through the temptation, poured a little chocolate sauce right on top of the marshmallow and said, okay, I'll be back. And so kids were like dipping their finger in the chocolate sauce, licking a little bit around, seeing how far could they go. Um, and not actually give in and eat the marshmallow. They wanted to uh, wait things out a little bit to get the two marshmallows. Very few made it to the second marshmallow, by the way, and those that did were very happy. It's the up-down button, right, Dennis? The... Yeah. Okay, just want to make sure I get the right button here. So last week we talked about the intentionality of Jesus. We talked about how Jesus came to earth with one purpose, to intentionally walk towards the cross, that no matter what came in his life, he was walking with one purpose, to go to the cross. And everything that he did along the way was intentional as well, and that we would, over the course of the next couple weeks, look at the intentional things he did as he intentionally walked towards the cross. So today, we're looking at intentional temptation, something that we might not think fits in Jesus' life, but that he intentionally endured temptation so that we can learn from that, have hope in that, and victory through that. See, the thing is that Jesus came to a broken world. It was shattered by the great lie that we read about from the children's Bible last week, the great lie that Satan told. It took heart 
in all of mankind that God doesn't love us, that he doesn't know what's best for us, that he won't provide for us when we need provision. That's the great lie the adversary tells. And in Scripture, we see that um, Jesus experiences this one-on-one with the devil. He's in the wilderness, and um, he meets the devil for 40 days. And he says things like, um, if you're hungry, why don't you just turn the stone to bread? And uh, nothing wrong with bread, um, nothing wrong with eating. Um, and there's everything wrong with giving into what the devil offers you. And when we read this passage, as we'll read in just a moment, um, there are three temptations in this passage. There's the bread and there's the, uh, all the kingdoms of the world and there's uh, the bowing down to Satan and, and um, so forth and so on. And we often read this passage as something like, these are the three temptations that we need to look out for in our own lives. We need to make sure that we don't turn our own stones into bread. We don't need to give in to our flesh. We don't need to fulfill our pride. And we look at these three things like they're all about us. And we need to realize as we go through the passage this morning is those three temptations are not about us. Those three temptations are about Jesus and will he walk with intention to the cross or will he give in and sacrifice his ability to be our savior? These three temptations are devil's way of saying, are you going to be the Messiah? Are you intentional enough no matter what I put in front of you? Are you going to love people more than you love yourself? Now, there is the application that, yes, we do need to flee from sin. So we need to get that from the passage as well. But ultimately, those three temptations have nothing to do with us and everything to do with the adversary trying to remove the Messiah from human history. So when we read this passage this morning, we need to realize that Jesus was, he was on target. He was walking towards that cross. And these three things that the adversary threw at him were the adversary's way of trying to remove the Messiah from human history. And so we're going to go ahead and read, if you will, stand with me, Luke chapter 4. It's one of my favorite stories. All of them are my favorite. I say that every week, don't I? Here we go. Luke chapter 4, starting at uh, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. For 40 days he was being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, Listen, if you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus said to him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And then the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time. said to him, To you I will give all this authority and all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I want to give it to. If you then will worship me, all of this will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and you shall serve him only. Then he took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot on a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You will not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil ended every temptation, he departed from him, until an opportune time. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There's a lot of stuff up in here this morning. I want to give you all some background here because this passage is about Jesus' intentionality. We need to understand a few things. 
First and foremost, this happened in roughly 27 AD. Jesus was my age, 30 years old. Um, It's weird, you know, growing up I read about these things and they said, oh, this happened when Jesus was 30. This happened when Jesus was 31, so forth and so on. He was crucified when he was 33. And now I'm 30 and now I read this passage and I'm like, Jesus was my age. He was just, he was like me. I always tell my daughter, Jesus was a little boy, just like you were a little girl, trying to help them relate, you know, so that she understands that Jesus grew up and learned to walk and learned to talk and studied the scriptures, and there's a relationship there. And now I'm looking at the own scriptures going, Jesus was 30 when he started ministry. He was 30 when he went into the wilderness, and so there's a new relationship for me here. I'm beginning to understand Jesus in a new way as he was 30. I am 30. I don't know if that matters to you, but... He relates with you where you are and your point in life, okay? He was roughly 30 years of age, and um, just prior to this, he got baptized. Um, If you have not been baptized, you should be baptized. You should talk to me after the service. Jesus did it. Um, He says we should do it, therefore, you should do it if you're a believer. But he came down from Nazareth, and I want to give you a map. Here's Jordan River. We looked at this last couple weeks ago, right? Jordan River um, during not flood stage, mild-mannered river. During flood stage, the Hulk of a river, okay? So here's the Jordan River, and it's, um, here's the map. Uh, the river goes down through the middle there. It's that white line. Now, some things that I want to point out to you so that you know. You see Galilee up there in the left-hand corner? Um, that's the region of Galilee. Just above the word Galilee is the town of Nazareth. So that's where Jesus came from. And he, don't have a little pointer here, he walked all the way down. Um, down past Samaria to um, uh, the Bethany area, which is kind of um, right here. That's Bethany. So he took a long walk, maybe about 80 miles, um, to get baptized. John the Baptist was just outside of Bethany, and he was doing his ministry there in the Jordan River, which is um, just about where Jericho is, so that you guys have Old Testament and New Testament together. Here's Jericho. And uh, the people of Israel were over here, and they crossed over to Jericho into the Promised Land, right? And John the Baptist was doing his ministry in this region and was baptizing people right about here. Interesting how God does that, isn't it? Um, So anyway, um, John the Baptist was baptizing in that area, and, um, and Jesus came down from Nazareth in Galilee to be baptized by John the Baptist. Um, so we kind of have this parallel here early on in Jesus's ministry that the Israelites crossed the Jordan in this place, um, just across from Jericho right here, um, to enter into the promised land. Many, many years later, Jesus comes down to be baptized, to enter into ministry, to cross a barrier for our souls so that we can enter the promised land. This is where he begins that kind of cool And then after he gets baptized, he goes into the wilderness. The Spirit leads him there. Um, You think, wow, he was away in the wilderness dealing with temptation. What was going on in his life? He must have had to get right with God before he started ministry. But the Spirit led him into the wilderness. The Spirit led him towards an intentional temptation situation. Now, this was uh, significant to the original audience for those that would have heard this story right after Jesus came back from the temptation Um, days after that. This would have been highly significant. He was there for 40 days. 40 is a significant number in Jewish history. Prophet Moses met with God for 40 days on the mountain, right? Huge moment in the life of Israel that would have shaped them for the rest of eternity. Um, Israel wandered the wilderness for 40 years due to their disobedience and their sin and their unbelief. So here we have Jesus, 
led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness for 40 days, fasting, which is, science would say, about the longest period of time a human can go without food. So 40 days without food in the wilderness, and it wasn't an easy environment. Um, it doesn't really give you a great picture of what the wilderness is, and so I want to help you understand that when it says Jesus went into the wilderness, um, it's going to look something like arid, rocky desert. This is actually the wilderness where he went, you know, in the modern-day picture of that area in land. Um, Elijah once walked this wilderness in the Old Testament. He was fleeing from Jezebel, and he sat, Elijah, man of God, right? Prophet, loved the Lord, did what the Lord said. He was in this wilderness fleeing from Jezebel, and he sat down under a little shrub, and he said, God, please take my life. This is too much. The wilderness was not a great place to be. Mark recounts in the gospel, of the temp, uh, the gospel uh, story of the temptation that um, Jesus was alone in the wilderness except for the wild beasts. This area was known to have vicious lions that would prowl around looking for something to eat. There was limestone and desert. And during um, the spring, which was roughly the time that Jesus would have been here, spring and summer, there were flash floods. So it would rain, and all of a sudden, it would be flooded. And this area was a horrible place to be. Um, there's another picture of the wilderness for you. Oh, you can imagine when it rains, there's nowhere for the rain to go. It just kind of puddles and floods, and there's more wilderness, more wilderness. And uh, you can kind of see a shadowy area and that crevice in the middle that kind of goes all the way up. Um, it's one of those. Remember we talked about the gore in the River Jordan that had these big, big drops, 100 feet drops. Um, when it floods, it would fill with water and you wouldn't know where you were stepping. This is the area that Jesus was in and occasionally it would flash flood and these would fill with water. Um, Jesus was in a place that was truly wild. He was in a wilderness exposed to heat and rain and cold and scorpions and lions and even people who hid out in the wilderness because they were escaping society, because they were robbers and they were murderers and so forth and so on. Jesus later told a parable about his, um, during his ministry about the Good Samaritan walking the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was in the wilderness that that road was alongside. You know, you wonder if Jesus saw something while he was in the wilderness. He saw a man get robbed and beaten maybe um, along this road. This place was not nice to be. And to make matters worse, if you don't have to deal with just the elements and just the lions and just the rain and the things that are out in the wilderness, lack of food and water, the devil shows up as if you're already having a bad day, okay? Then the devil shows up and he doesn't just show up to have tea with you. He shows up to torment you for 40 days and nights. Scripture is pretty clear about this that there were 40 days of continuous temptation, 40 nights of continuous temptation, that the devil tempted Jesus with every temptation that mankind can be tempted with, everything, everything for 40 days, it never stops. Have you ever had a period in your life where you're just struggling and you're like, I can't get out from under this? 40 full. And then he was fasting and he was getting hungry. And you ever gone without food? You get cranky, right? I do, 40 days without food. It's very difficult. And so it's at this point that we enter the story, that Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, that he is hungry, 
that he has been praying, that he has been doing spiritual battle in the wilderness. And then we see that the fast ends. It says this in Scripture that um, when the fasting ended, he was hungry. Then the devil said, if you're hungry, turn this stone into bread. Now, the fast was over. What's wrong with eating? Well, nothing's wrong with eating. And this is where temptation starts to take root, right? This is where some of us give in. Why did God permit Jesus to be tempted? Why did God not just like pew the devil right out of the wilderness and let Jesus enjoy a nice vacation? Well, Scripture says that our hearts and our intentions are exposed and revealed through our trials. Deuteronomy 8.2 And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what's in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Through our trials, our heart is revealed. You know, God, but we come to see our our what we're really made of when we are in water, squeeze it. Whatever the Spirit of God overflows out of you. If you're full of sewer water, what comes out? Okay? Our trials reveal what is inside of us. And so here we have Jesus in the wilderness. He was fully God, fully man too. This beautiful union of God and man. And Jesus, the man, was about to have his heart and his character revealed. The first thing that we see is the rock and the roll. Okay? This is the first temptation that Jesus endured. The 40-day fast is over. The devil approaches him with a question, and it poked at his pride, and it poked at his physical hunger. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. You guys grew up on playgrounds, right? You ever brag about something you could do, and then someone said, Okay, let me see it. Let me see you. Let me see you, whatever you plan to do. Then... You've got to put up or shut up, okay? You have to prove it, or it's obviously not true. It's not that Satan doubted Christ's divinity, but he was twisting words and breathing doubt into the face of Jesus here. In essence, he told Jesus to prove it. Prove who you are. Prove who you claim to be. And if you can't prove it, then you obviously are not the Son of God. Well, that's false logic, right? Just because someone chooses not to prove something doesn't mean it's not true. Prove you can tie your shoes. But if you're wearing Velcro shoes, well, you don't have laces. Just because you can't do it in the moment doesn't mean you can't tie your shoes. It just means you can't do it at the moment. The devil basically tells Jesus, prove it or it's not true. And that can hurt your pride, right? If you can't prove something in the moment, you're a little, you feel like, wait a minute, now I have to prove something to someone. And then he says this, when the pride is wounded, turn your stone into bread. Jesus was hungry, and his fast was over, and it wasn't wrong to eat bread, but it would have been wrong to do it at the uh, voice of the devil. Jesus needs to trust God for his needs and not create outside of God's will. This was not just about his pride. This was not just about his hunger. This was about faithful dependence on God. This was a challenge to act apart from God's provision. Would Jesus trust God to provide for his needs? Satan wanted Jesus to perform a messianic proof here. To prove that Jesus was the Messiah because who else can turn stone 
into bread. In doing so, though, he wouldn't have been qualified to serve as the Messiah. If he had given in at that moment, eating would not have been wrong. Obeying Satan would have been wrong. And he would have no longer been able to serve as Messiah because he would have given in to temptation and sin. Jesus responded with, It is written, quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3, Man does not live on bread alone. Now, he quotes the last half of the verse I read you earlier. You shall remember the whole way the Lord your God led you these 40 years, speaking to the nation of Israel, that he might humble you, test you to know what's in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not, for man does not live on bread alone. The verse continues. What happened to the Israelites in the wilderness? They got into the wilderness. They wandered around. They got hungry. There was no food. They said, woe is us. I wish we were back in Egypt. At least we had food. At least we wouldn't die starvation. Here's the, here's the, um, the time that Jesus enters into human history and says, listen, um, Israel didn't do it right. But I'm, I'm going to cover that with me. Um, Jesus succeeded where Israel didn't. Um, they doubted God's provision. Even when manna was provided, they scooped up extra because they didn't trust God. And here Jesus says simply, I'm not going to partake in this, the devil's temptation, because I trust my God to provide for me. He succeeded where Israel didn't. He also succeeded where Adam and Eve didn't. They were offered the same lie. God doesn't love you. God won't provide for you. You need to reach out and get your own provision. You need to take what's in front of you and the opportunity you have because God might not do it for you. Well, Jesus knew something a little deeper than that. Jesus said, listen, I'm not going to take something that doesn't yet belong to me. God will provide when the time is right. I'm not going to take something that he has not provided. He trusted God and he waited. Test number one, completed. He did not eat the stone turned to bread. Now and later. Here's the second one. little food theme for you. Now and later. The devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time and said to him, I'm going to give you all of the authority and all the glory. It's been given to me. I can give it to you. All you need to do is just worship me. Just bow down once. Just kneel before me. Jesus says, it's written, you're going to worship and serve the Lord your God and only him you shall serve. Now, not having distracted Jesus from his intentional path with food or pride, Satan tries again. This is a mystical vision, something that we can only assume um, in the mind's eye, in a, in a vision, the devil made him see all the kingdoms of the world. The original language implies that it was kingdoms to come, kingdoms that were present, and kingdoms past. That The devil was saying, listen, you have authority over everything that's going to happen here. Um, there is no place in Israel that is high enough to see all of the known world at the time. So we have to assume that there is some sort of mystical vision that uh, Satan is giving Jesus here. Um, and the devil says, listen, if you simply bow down to me, um, I'll give you all this because I own it all. Well, we know that Satan is the father of lies, do we not? Everything he says is a lie. There is no truth in him. Um, and so Jesus is like, wait a minute, my lie radar is kicking in here. I don't know that you have all the authority. 
But in one respect, Satan was um, hinting at the truth. Jesus would one day rule over all the kingdoms. He would one day have all the authority. And Satan was saying, listen, um, I'll give it to you now. You don't have to have that same intention, that long obedience in one direction. You don't have to do the painful thing you're going to do. Here's a shortcut. Just kneel before me. You can have it all now. Easy peasy. We'll make a good transaction. It'll all be good. You can have the authority. You can have all the kingdoms, plural, of the world. The thing is, Jesus didn't come to rule over kingdoms that were fractured by sin and disobedience and dishonor. He came to rule over one kingdom, the kingdom of God united by peace and the Holy Spirit. He did not come to have many people fractured. He came to take fractured people and unite them under one banner. Satan was offering him a cheap imitation of what he truly came for. It was a now and later issue for Jesus. Now, all of the kingdoms fractured. Later, one kingdom in glory. Satan offered a shortcut. But Jesus had intention. He had his eyes focused on the prize and he said, I'm not going to be... I'm not going to be distracted by what looks good now. I want what's better later. I want the second marshmallow. I want to wait for that second marshmallow. Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. He said, listen, I'm not going to worship you, Satan. I'm going to proceed forward with the plan that God has. I'm not going to give in to this. He succeeded where Adam failed. See, Adam set the tone for his marriage and its health. And it's grounding in God. And he set the tone by letting Eve partake in sin. He didn't structure that family well enough. He had a sin of omission by not looking out for his family. But Jesus, as the good husband of the church, said, No, I'm going to stand in the gap. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and the Lord alone. He succeeded where Adam failed as the bridegroom for our church. He said, I'm not going to let my church fall into this. We're going to worship God. We're going to serve God alone. He intentionally acted as the loving husband of the church, stopping sin in its tracks there and setting the example for us. He also acted as a big brother to all Christians, showing us how to escape by satisfying the desire of now at the cost of blessing later. We worship God. We worship God alone. We do not worship our own desires. We do not worship our own passions. We do not worship what's good in the moment. We worship one God and his will for our life. And Jesus set the tone for the church from that point forward. Now, at this point, I imagine the adversary is getting really frustrated. He's thinking, man, Adam and Eve, I could pull the wool over their eyes. Israel wasn't too hard to lead astray. But this Jesus guy, man, he's kind of dug in. He's got this... He's got this vision for this cross that I can't seem to shake him from. I'm going to try one more thing here. And this one more thing is um, no PPDA. No premature public display of affection. Okay? No premature public display of affection. And, and it reads like this in the scripture. He took Jesus to Jerusalem set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, there's the pride again, yeah, prove it. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you stub your little pinky toe on a stone. 
And Jesus said, it said, you will not put the Lord your God to the test. So here we have the third temptation. Foiled again, the devil tries again. He brings Jesus to the top of the temple mount. Um, and I got a picture of it here for you. Um, here's the temple in Jerusalem's day. This is an artist's recreation. But he would have gone to the highest point of the temple. He would have stood on top of that. And he said, listen, just jump off this. God will catch you. You're his son. I'm not denying that. He will catch you. And um, voila, now everyone knows you're the Messiah. Great. And this is a good way to start your ministry, right? Let's go out with a bang. Um, he even used scripture to entice Jesus. He quoted the, the scriptures to Jesus. But he left one part out. Have you guys ever gone and read the content of this scripture? He left one section out in between the two sections he, uh, he quotes here. He says, he will command his angels to concern you, guarding you. Um, and then he left out this chunk, according to God's ways, according to the will of God. So Jesus, if he'd thrown himself off the temple, would have stepped out of God's will for Jesus' life, God's intention for the Messiah. Satan just left out that important part of the truth, and uh, a lie is a lie when it's not the truth, right? An omission is a lie in this case. So Satan is telling a lie again to Jesus. But what's really interesting here is in this day and age of Jesus, there was a bunch of rabbis. They were the leaders and the teachers of the church. And there was something called rabbinic tradition. It was something that all the rabbis gathered together and they studied the word and they said, we believe these things to be true. And they're not explicitly written in scripture, but rabbinic tradition would lead them to believe certain things. One of the rabbinic traditions of the day was that when the Messiah came back, the Messiah would appear on top of the temple for all to see. And so Satan is saying, listen, the people are expecting you to come back this way. The people want you to be on top of the temple. This is what they expect in their Messiah. They expect you to be on top of the temple when you come back. You don't want to disappoint them, do you? You want them to recognize who you are, don't you? And let's take it one step further. If they were even to doubt you, if you just fling yourself from the temple, God will catch you, and then in front of everyone, they will know you are the Son of God. Because the temple was a highly trafficked place. People were coming and going and doing worship, and it was um, just a really populated place. So if Jesus was at the top of there, everyone would go, hey, look, it's the Messiah, just like the rabbinic tradition teaches. And then he would be caught, and everyone would see, even the rabbis and the religious leaders of the day would go, truly this is who we have been waiting for. And isn't that what Jesus came to do? Didn't he come to be the Messiah? Didn't he come to be known among the people so that everyone would have hope in him and believe in him? Yes, that is what he came to do, but he didn't come to do it like that. Scripture does say the Son of Man must be lifted up. But is that what Scripture meant to prove to all of the rabbis of the day that he could stand on top of the temple? God's intention for revealing the Messiah was not on top of the temple. God's intention for revealing the Messiah was not to be born into a, uh, a kingly, earthly home. He was born in a manger, right? He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. The first thing he smelled was cow poop, okay? He was poor. He was on the run. He was born to a single mother. He rode a donkey, not a steed. This is not how the people expected their Messiah to come. But God's intention is not 
man's intention. His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are better than our thoughts. And so Jesus said this to the devil, listen, I'm not going to put God to the test, meaning I'm not going to take your stupid bet. I'm not going to do this shortcut. I am not going to seek a premature display of public affection from God before the people. The Son of Man will be lifted up when God desires the Son of Man to be lifted up. And it will not be on the temple. It will be on the cross. With Christ's vision so focused intently on the cross, knowing that that is how he would be lifted up, his heart was revealed through trial. He desired to be lifted up. He desired to be lifted up on the cross at the right time. The lifting up wasn't full of glory. Um, it wasn't free of pain. It wasn't an escape from death. It wasn't an escape from humiliation. It was a horrible lifting up. Going to the top of the temple was a better option when you look at it. For his body. For his heart. For his mental well-being. But Jesus, with one intention, said, God's plans are better than the plans of the devil. God's plans are better than the plans of my own weak flesh. I'm going to walk with one intention towards the cross. And nothing is going to distract me from that. No shortcut, no piece of bread, no kingdoms divided now. I will go to the cross according to God's will. And here is where Jesus succeeded, where Israel failed. Israel put God to the test in the wilderness. Just show us a sign that you're with us, God. Just give us some provision and some protection so that we know you are here and that you love us. And they didn't ask in faith. They asked in unfaith. They said, we don't believe you're with us. We need you to prove it. We don't believe you'll take care of us. We need you to take care of us. Prove you're God. Prove you'll take care of us. Prove you're the one who led us into wilderness because we think we're out here and we're going to die. Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. His faith in God was enough. He didn't need to demand the proof of himself or of others. He didn't seek that premature public display of affection. And because of that intentionality through these three trials, now Jesus was not only high and lifted up at Calvary on the cross for our sins. He is now currently high and lifted up at the right hand of God in heaven, ruling and reigning over one kingdom of God. If he had given in to these temptations, he would not be there right now, ruling and reigning. Giving in to any type of sin would have made him a lamb with spot, not the spotless lamb that paid the price for our sin. We serve a God of intentionality. We serve a God who saw a broken world and said, I've got a better way than this. But it takes Jesus to go to the cross. So Jesus had to say, okay, I will come to earth. I will wrap myself in flesh. I will endure ridicule. I will endure temptation. I will endure all things. And I will do it while walking to the cross for the sins of mankind. But it didn't end there. It's not like Satan said, oh, well, I failed. Satan had a big purpose. He wants to undo what God is doing before it gets done. And so the scripture passage ends like this. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What was that opportune time? Well, he wasn't going to get the better of Jesus. 
Jesus had one intention. He was focused. Who did he get the better of? Judas. An opportune time later in life. Scripture says the devil did lead Jesus alone until an opportune time when he couldn't sway Jesus, he swayed Judas. See, the devil doesn't give up on his mission to destroy Christ's church, to destroy Christ's witness among the church and his people. Jesus showed us perfect intentionality, despite things that would have been very pleasing to the flesh. An intentionality focused on the will of God and his glory, not on momentary pleasures. We have a lot to learn from this, even though this passage isn't really about us. This passage is about Jesus saying, I count the cross as a higher importance than I count my own pride. I count the cost of the cross as a higher thing than my own hunger, than my own pride, than my own desire to not be crucified. He counted that as greater. But we do have this. Christ gives us victory in temptation and through temptation and over temptation. Because he is the perfect Adam who succeeded where Adam failed. Because he's the perfect Israel where Israel failed. We have the perfect Christ who covers our failures. And this is good news. He gives us the victory. But it, it goes beyond just knowing that our sins are forgiven. It's all well and good, right? We can just say our sins are forgiven. I can go do what I want. Christ paid the price. Scripture has something to say about that too. It's not just that our sins are forgiven. It's that we are called to live with that same intentionality and mindset that Jesus demonstrated. We are called to, in our own wildernesses, say, I see what Satan is doing here, but it is written. Man does not live on bread alone. It is written, you shall worship and serve the Lord your God only. It is written, it is written, it is written. Time and time again, we need to say, I know the devil's after me, but I have one intention, and it's to walk towards the cross. I might not be crucified like Jesus, but I will endure persecution. I will endure suffering. I will endure broken relationship. I will endure whatever God wills for me. But I will walk towards that cross and I will not be distracted by what Satan offers me. Because I know that Christ was not distracted and he did something great for me. And he gives me the hope and the strength and the endurance to live the same way. Christ never wavered in his intentionality for you or towards you. And he never wavers in his intentionality for you or towards you right now in this very moment. He continues to be your strength. He continues to be your victory. And so this is the moment in our lives when we get to say, we see what scripture says about Jesus. We see how he endured opposition and he powered through it by the help of the Holy Spirit. He walked towards that cross. And now you get to decide in your own life. Will you serve Christ? Will you live in the victory? Or are you going to give in to the father of lies? Because we all have our wilderness experiences. We all have a secret sin. We all have a burden. We all have a past experience that weighs on us that says, you're disqualified because you can't possibly do this for God because you've, you have this in your life, therefore God doesn't love you. You have a broken relationship. Christ doesn't like you anymore. He's not pleased with you. He didn't cover that. That's horrible. 
We've all heard the adversary whisper these things in our heart before. But we need to know that Jesus overcame the devil in the wilderness. And he overcame the devil on the cross. And he gives us the victory so that we don't have to listen to that voice that says you are worthless. God doesn't love you. You have to figure it out on your own. We don't have to figure it out on our own. God figured it out for us. He lives with one intention so that we would live with one intention. This morning, you need to know that Jesus intentionally opened the door of heaven to you. You can go straight to the throne room of God, humbly seeking forgiveness, boldly seeking power of the Spirit for your life. You can have peace and forgiveness and joy and all of these things. And you can have victory over your temptation. Victory in those moments where you are weak. And so we're going to worship here in just a moment. We put most of the worship after the service because um, I think it's really good now that we've heard that Jesus didn't waver, that he has one intention and he calls you to live that same way, knowing that he will strengthen you. Now we get to worship the God who gave us the victory. Now we get to have that victory ourselves. The altar will be open for you guys to come and pray. This is the time to claim the victory that Jesus has given you. So, this morning, as you worship, will you intentionally live like Jesus lived? Saying, devil, get the heck away from me. Jesus is so much better. You willing to do that this morning? Yes? Amen? Anything? Okay, good. Then let's worship. Stand to your feet, sit, kneel, whatever is good for you. But praise the God who gave you the victory in Christ Jesus. It says this in the book of Hebrews. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in the flesh and the blood, he, Jesus, partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that's the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to slavery. For surely it's not the angels that Christ helps, but the offspring of Abraham. That's us. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make payment for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We love Jesus. Amen? And because we love Jesus, we are covered by his blood. All of the things that he suffered and endured, he did for us. We are covered and forgiven. And that is the good news that we have that we carry in our hearts. Christ gave us the victory. It's other ways in scripture that he transferred us from the domain of darkness to life and light that he gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. And because we are carriers of that victory, we get to go take that victory into the world. There is nothing that the world or the devil or the flesh can throw at you that Christ cannot overcome and use for his glory. So as we sing this last song here, Victory in Jesus, sing it with a lot of joy and a lot of hope because you have that victory. And I'll just give you the benediction now, and then when you are done singing songs, you may go. The benediction is this. You have victory in Jesus. Sing it with all your heart. Live it with all your heart and soul. And on your way out, 
take one marshmallow and remember that Christ had intention towards the second marshmallow, and you should as well. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's worship.